Welcome to the Poetry Questions TPQ20, where we sit down with your favorite authors to talk about passions, process, pitfalls, and poetry. My name is Chris Margolin. Let's expand the conversation. Well, thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to hang out today on TPQ20. Uh, we always like to start off TPQ20 by saying, you know, we know who you are, um, but our audience might be new to your work. And if you were to kind of give the bio that your publicist doesn't have, uh, who would you say you are? What are your like major passions? Well, I um, a friend of mine sort of summed up my career in in a a, com- a compound sentence. And um, she was uh, introducing me at my college in New York, where I taught for many years. <clears throat> and uh, this was, um, well, at a certain point in my career, she said, when I first met Billy, um, he was a professor who happened to be a poet. And now he's, be- he's, uh, he's become a poet who happens to be a professor. So I went to, you know, I went to college duh, and um, went to graduate school and got a PhD in English literature and really hadn't published anything, was messing around with poetry, pretty intimidated by the whole thing and not very confident for good reason. And, um, but to speed that up a little bit, I, um, after I got my PhD, I came back to New York from Southern California and um, got a job in, uh, in the City University of New York and ended up teaching there for, you know, 35, 37 years. And uh, it was during that time that uh, originally when I was hired there, and for many years, I didn't, I didn't teach poetry. I mean, I taught literature, um, but I didn't teach creative writing. In fact, we had one teacher who taught that. But eventually, uh, my poems started getting published. I got a couple of books out, and then um, they asked me if I. So I, I, it happened very gradually, and I didn't get my first real book out until I was over forty. Right. And uh, I don't know if that's very different from my my formal biography, but um, <laughs> yeah. I guess a, a good question from that is, you know, at, at forty years old, you know, who are you compared to that now? You know, how does how does Poker Face look? Uh, versus, you know, versus musical tables, where we, well, well, I hope there's a little development there. Uh, (laughs) And if if you have a copy of Poker Face, I'll buy it from you and burn it. Um, (laughs) Well, those, there's one called video poems also. Those were the first two. I don't know if you call them chapbooks, but it was a friend of mine had, had, had a book published by uh, a guy and his wife in Los Angeles, and they ran a press. There's just the two of them. And they were a hippie couple who, who sat on the floor. They didn't like chairs, you know. <laughs> so he'd always sit on the floor when they were there. And um, so they uh, they published a, my, my friend's book, and my friend said, maybe he'll, he'll publish you. And so I gave my friend, I said, here, give them, like, here's 15 poems, see if they like them. Well, about two weeks later, I find out that they're already they're binding the book together. They thought that was the manuscript. So, um, but then I got a, a book published by the University of Arkansas Press, and that was uh, that was my first uh, real book, I guess, by a university press. And I don't know. I have a, there's a story about that. Do you want me to tell you the story? Yeah. Well, 
friend of mine, Ron Kirchy, I don't know if you know his poems. Um, he, he had, uh, they published a book by him, University of Arkansas Press. <clears throat> the um, director of the press was Miller Williams. And he is uh, not as well known as, as you should be. He's not with us anymore. But he did, uh, he was Bill Clinton's second, second inaugural poet. He, he, he read a poem at the inauguration, not poet laureate, but right. inaugural poet. Um, so I sent him, this is, um, I guess, uh, in the late 70s, something like that. I sent him a, um, a manuscript and he sent it back and he put a paperclip around about 17 of the poems. I must have sent 40 or something. And he, with a little, very short note, and he said, these poems are quite good with the rubber, the, the uh, paperclip. He said, if you can write more poems, well, he said, the other poems, they don't live up to the standards set by the other poems. And he said, if you can write some more poems as good as these 17, I'll publish your book. So then I got to work for the next couple of, year and a half, maybe. <clears throat> I threw the other ones out, kept the, uh, the, uh, paper clipped once and i i was trying to please this guy miller williams i'd never met down in arkansas but he um <clears throat> but that as i said that that um paper clip was like an mfa um degree because he did what a good teacher should do and that is not compare your work to outside standards but find something good in your work and ask you to to live up move in that direction i love that and that's uh, that's how that started oh that's fantastic that's a, it, what a cool way to start out by having somebody who uh you know who would actually take the time to look through the pieces and choose those 17 versus just say and eh, we can you know come back to this later or you know maybe, yeah. maybe in a few more years come around to it well, he's a very smart editor and he's also the the father of lucinda williams oh. who's better known than he was <laughs> But Lucinda and Miller went on the road a few times and uh, she sang and, and he read his poem, something I did with Amy Mann a couple of times. We went on the road and I did poems and she sang. And I remember when I called Miller Williams, I, there was a message and I called him and he said, I think we have a book here. And um, he said he wanted to do a little editing. I, I'd never had a book editor or anything. And I, you know, fearfully said, well, what kind of editing? Like, <laughs> change all the titles or he said well here's something on this particular poem you say um he is um something about uh he is so afraid or something like that he said i don't think you need the intensifier so and i thought man this guy is right down reading every tiny word and the other thing he said that was wise I said, well, when's it going to be published? Thinking, how about next week? You know, <laughs> he said, well, probably it's going to go in the lineup. It'll be published in about a year and a half. And he could hear the silent <laughs> disappointment. And he said, Billy, that time will pass anyway. And now you have a book to look forward to. That was so relaxing. <laughs> that time will pass anyway. That's fantastic. That, that yeah, way to way to lessen the anxiety around that and understand that you can still keep working too. Right? Yes, yeah. you know, in your in your career, um, you know, kind of the role of poetry seems to have changed in you know, in especially in you know, I think 
in the world right now we're living in a good spot where there's a there seems to be a new crop of poets coming up that people are are actually listening to and and you know seeking to uh, you know mm -hmm. so i think it, we it feels like a nice new renaissance of poetics has there been another time where you felt that poetry truly made kind of people sit down or stand up or do something about you know about whatever uh policies and and politics were out there we just seem to be in an era where it's it's actually pushing us somewhere vietnam comes to mind i mean in my lifetime i mean there's a lot of there was a lot of anti-war poetry written uh alan ginsburg has i mean i think uh, one of his is a collected book of his poems about vietnam and I don't know, they're, I would say they're not very good poems. They don't live up to um, what he was writing when his imagination was un unfettered or unharnessed to a political cause. That tends to be or can be imaginatively limiting because um, not only uh, is your poetry being informed by a set of beliefs or a set of you know, um, locked in attitudes, but also um, there's the temptation or the risk of writing poems that are, I don't know, insistent, uh, that have a design on the reader. Uh, as Keats, I think, said, a palpable design on the reader. So I, I don't, I, I cut out of poems when I hear, have a sense that I'm being maneuvered into a position. Um, I, I think they're, they're, other pleasures and thrills in poetry besides uh, being um, manipulated. But um, I don't know, it's, I, think, um, I think a renaissance occurs, when you, if you can call it that, when you have an, we, we have an audience for poetry, as, as you said. And, um, and I think that probably is happening now. The only thing I, wor I wonder about, I don't worry really, but um, Joseph Epstein was wrote an essay on poetry back in the late 70s, I think. And there's a lot of poetry going on. This was when uh, MFA programs were burgeoning. Uh, and there were a lot of poetry, much many more poetry readings than there ever were. And he's, but he said that if to describe modern contemporary poetry, he said, I would describe it as a, uh, is it a, um, Trying to think of it now, it's like flourishing in a vacuum. And by that he meant there's lots of poetry being written, there's lots of poetry activities. Most of the audience for, for that poetry are poets themselves. In other words, it's, it's a closed circuit. Yeah. So that, I mean, I, I'd ask you, uh, representing a, an earlier generation, a younger generation, do you think that people are going to, the readings and performances that are not connected to poetry. Yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a fantastic question. I, I think uh, this is going to be my, my 19th year as a, as an educator. And so I've kind of seen some waves come through of students who are more interested in the idea of, of going out to readings, or I do think that the zoom readings of the last like two or so years has made it easier for maybe a non-poetry audience mm -hmm. um, to maybe become a poetry audience mm -hmm. uh, via just having a computer on in the background even. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, it's a, it's a weird world because it's, it's poetry feels, you know, in a reading, like it should be a lot more intimate than a screen. 
So it's it's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's been fun to see what some poets can do to set a mood and create, you know, create a scene. Um, well, it's gotten louder. It's definitely, it's definitely gotten louder. <laughs> I mean, that's one thing you can say. Somebody turned up the volume. <laughs> and, know, but that's, I mean, that's also, I think, can be a danger because, you know, uh, I think, you know, good poems for me start kind of quietly and uh, straight and rather straightforwardly. These poems, at least I'm trying to write, and they deepen as they go along. They kind of get tangled up in something more interesting than th- th- what they began with. But um, if you start out with your volume at like nine, you know, I mean, there's it's like every singer knows this. You you end big, you know. But so uh, there's a potential danger of a lack of modulation. It's kind of like the uh, the spinal tap of poetry. Then, if it just stays at eleven, the eleven, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's become a famous number in rock and roll, right? Right. right. Every amp must go to eleven. <laughs> I don't know. I, was, I look around my room. My amps don't. I don't think they've got that number. So, who are you know? Who are you reading these days? Who keeps you kind of excited about about poetry? What do you go back to? Well, there's just a lot of poets. I. Um, I just had this house we live in remodeled or a good part of it. And all the books had to be packed up and, and uh, put in about fi- over 50 boxes in a, in a put in a storage pod. And I just um, finished sorting through them. And I, I really just wanted to um, get it down to poem to poems. I really like and would, would, would turn to again and again. So it's a much smaller library now. I mean, here's an example. I don't mean to uh, be critical of anybody, but I mean, I had the collector James Merrill, right? And and that's, you know, you should kind of have that in your poetry library. I don't read James Merrill. I mean, I, I just would never pick him up. I, I, do, I don't need just, I mean, you can't love everybody because uh, if you love everybody, you don't love anybody. Yeah. So I gave him to the library. And um, that's the kind of cutting I did. Uh, I you know I didn't keep anything that would that I wouldn't uh, turn to. So I don't know. One of the poets I've kept reading is Charles Simic. I used to uh, I used to read Simic before I wrote, you know, and sometimes and I do that sometimes to this day, not all the time, but I just read him. If I opened collected Simic and I read I don't know two or three poems, read him for five minutes or something or less. And it just gets me, I like his directness, I like his spookiness. Um, there's, he just has great, I mean, when he says broom, it's like every broom in history is kind of attached to the broom. He has these really magical powers, I think, of linguistic powers. Um, but there are lots of them. I had really the influences for me were, um, when I first wrote poetry, I thought, I knew two things about poetry, or at least I thought I did, that poet, uh, poetry was really hard to understand and that the poets were miserable. Um, something, something was really drastically wrong. <laughs> and, and this now I'm at like in, uh, in college or a teenager, and I, it's really easy to write poems that don't make any sense. Right. Yes. And yes. I could do that easily. <laughs> And and I would have imagery in there that was very dark and gothic, and so the liberating moment was when I started reading poems by like William Matthews and uh, Philip Larkin and other poets who were funny 
And you, I mean, it's used humor, but they used it with serious uh, intent. And uh, I was keeping my humor to myself. So that was, um, that changed a lot. That opened the door for yeah. me. It's a big, that's a big door to step through that idea that you can be, you can be yourself inside your poetry. Yeah, you can. It's really a part of finding your voice is just releasing stuff that you already have. Uh, it's not finding a new person. It's getting permission to release the, these parts of you, these voices into your poems. Because every, every uh, generation have, has a sense of decorum about what you can write about and what you shouldn't write about. When Whitman writes that poem to uh, a locomotive in winter, you know, it's a, it's a, trying to capture in language the power of this this dynamic new thing, this uh, this big breakthrough in technology, like like flight. You know, <clears throat> connecting the whole country by rail. He says to the muse, "Come, come and serve this once for the first time." He, he says, "I shouldn't be writing about this. I should be writing about nature, but I can't help it." <laughs> Look at this crazy thing. But that was the decorum back then. Poets wrote about nature, not about mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I studied a, a lot of the transcendentalism during, it was kind of where I headed during college was that, was that idea. And I always love, love you know, the, the universal eyeball and the idea of that overseer and the idea that technology had its place in beauty, but also uh, needed to become part of who we are versus, you know, what we were going to be. Right. Well, the transparent eyeball is is a uh, uh, something to be sought. I mean, I mean, it's free of free of opinions. Do you teach yourself? Do you? I, I mean, you, you do. Yeah, yeah, I taught I taught high school for for about uh, about twelve years, and I've taught middle school since. Um, oh, amazing! Do you teach poetry writing? Oh, very much so. And yeah, it's hmm. it's interesting because it's hard to break. You know, in the in the education world, I always feel like you know you you get an acrostic poem here or there, you get some fill in the blank things, and I I learned early on uh, when when you know YouTube really kind of took over and you know the the early aughts um i learned that you could go to youtube and just type in you know poetry and eventually um button poetry came along um you know for kind of the modern age uh, and i was able to send kids to youtube and just type in button poetry and just go and what do you like what do you listen mm. to you know what are the sounds that you want to hear and my students ended up filling a whiteboard of 183 poets um, and it was kind of our job over the course of that year to, uh, to contact as many as we could and ask them, um, you know, their, my student's question was, why is poetry relevant or is poetry relevant in the 21st century? Um, so it was kind of their job to go out and, and find out. And they filled a whiteboard to prove that, yeah, to them, it was still, it was still very relevant. Yeah. I haven't taught that, uh, high school or middle school, but I've, I've judged some poetry contests that have age, you know, for fairly young people. Right. And I, I find that, you know, when they're, uh, uh, when they're like 10 or around that age, they, their imaginations are just crazy. I mean, somebody said he was like smoking a cigarette on the moon. And I mean, just all sorts of stuff. But I found that when they get to adolescence, they kind of close down in that, um, well, they become self-conscious for one thing. And they don't want to be ridiculed. <laughs> That's all I thought about going through high school. 
<laughs> it's hard. Well, and it's harder. I think. Well, it takes him a while to kind of like. I I always, I had a student who he was a brilliant basketball player, and basketball was kind of twenty four seven. That's all he did. All he thought about. He always had a ball in his hand, and he he could not get himself to a point where he could write kind of outside the box until, you know, he kind of stumbled upon the question himself, what is life without basketball? And so for him, it opened up all of these really, I mean, for him, it was a, a real emotional trigger because right. what was life without this, this object and this thing. And I, I always love watching students get to that point where they, they break through the noise and they find what they actually want inside the poem. And then it's mm. like, okay. So, and then I always tell them 10 lines or less. Like let's let's write it down at the beginning and see yeah. what we can come up with and and you know, and then watching them just kind of figure it out and and it's cool going to the, some of the like the youth slam events um, is always fun. Uh, Portland does a really we live just outside of Portland, Oregon. We have a great scene here for the mm. for youth for youth poetry. Uh, yeah. Vers, Verse Landia is is a massive yearly uh, high school student event. Well, for me and you, that would be is uh, what 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 is life without poetry? Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I don't I mean poetry is our basketball right it, yes it absolutely is to kind of close things off what advice would you give ada lamone as she steps into the role of poet laureate oh well um if you were to give her kind of a you know a, a nickel of advice what would it be well i i i just want to say i i truly admire her i think it's a brilliant choice poems are they have a quality that uh, I look for in poetry, and it's a very simple quality, but it's hard to find. And that is, her poems are interesting. Her poems are very interesting, and I think, I think, in, being interesting to the reader is uh, is to be desired. Um, I would just say to don't lose track of your private, that private space that you write in. Um, the laureateship is a, a huge honor, but you are being dragged into um, the public sphere. And that means moving from one side of your brain to the other. And so uh, um, at one point, I mean, I enjoy talking to you today, but at one point I thought I would be uh, the first Christian martyr to be actually interviewed to death. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a lot of a uh, lot of demands on on the poet, and uh, and you've got this fancy office in Washington, and it's 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 very flattering and fun, and you meet lots of interesting people. But there is that wherever wherever that chair is that you go to write, or that couch, or that veranda, or what window you tend to look out. I mean, I, that's what you you need to keep that home base intact. Uh, I think it's the only little nugget I could pass on to her. But it's hard because it's so fun out there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you go to a college and give a reading or a high school, uh, you know, usually it's pretty pretty straightforward affair. But when you're a poet laureate, you know, they bring in the trustees and the, uh, you know, the district head of schools. And you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're official. Yeah. And you get questions uh, like, what do you think of the, what's what's the future of poetry? And you know, if I sat in a room for three hundred years, I, I would never think of asking that question. I don't know. If I knew the future, I'd go to the racetrack every day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me today on TPQ20. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I really, I look forward to your new book uh, coming out this November. Um, and I am just, I'm so excited to Great. have had you on here. Can I, can I read you one poem from the book? Oh, without question. Well, there, there, you know, the musical uh, tables is, it's very, I'll read you, I'll read you two poems. Okay. Please. And they're just, they're absolutely microscopic. They're, they're very tiny poems. And um, let's see, it's right here. It's called, and the, the poem is called 3 a.m. Only my hand is asleep, but it's a start. See, they're, they're quite small. Now here's a four line poem, motel parking lot. Saying goodbye is so sad. I don't even bother to turn around to see what it was you just threw at me. So I'll just leave you with that. It's got a, got a cow on the cover. Well, this will be out November 15th. Thank you. But so you can pre-order. You can pre-order. Pre-orders are always, always welcomed. Uh, I look forward to sending hopefully a new audience your way and uh, reminding people of the power of Billy Collins. Great. So thank you Chris. so very much. Have a great rest of your day. Great. Great to talk to you. Take care. Well, Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Questions TPQ20. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week.